Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning. We're going to get started now. Um, this morning I'm going to be uh, reading uh, Isaiah 48. And uh, anxious to hear Josh's message this morning from the Lord. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declare them to you from old before they came to pass I announce them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them, my carved image, and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been open. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. I will not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he. I am the first, I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens when I called to them. They stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and I will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me, and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea, Declare this and shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them 
through the desert. He made, he made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Father, thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, Father, just uh, ask your blessing upon this congregation. Uh, Father, we just ask that you be with Josh as he presents this message. Father, uh, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, Father, to receive this message. Uh, Father, we ask that you be with our youth and our teachers. Uh, Father, bless them and protect them. Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for each and every blessing that you give us each and every day. Father, we ask that you be with the members of our congregation that are not with us today. Uh, Father, keep the hedge of protection around them. Keep them safe. Bring them back to us at the next appointed time. Father, please be with Brian and Mandy and their family as they prepare to uh, make their trip back here to the United States. Father, bless them. Uh, bless that everything goes smoothly for them in their travel back. Uh, Father, we love them. We cannot wait to see them. Uh, Father, they are just doing such good works in your name, Father. We just love them. And again, just bless them and bring them back to us safely. Father, again, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask that you forgive us of our sins. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. In a recent study put out by the Barna Group, uh, they do lots of different uh, Christian and worldview studies and polls. Stunningly, it found that 9% of American adults live with a biblical worldview. Now, of course, that's not, it's not saying 9% of Christian adults, but 9% of American adults. Nevertheless, that is pretty stunning, especially when we have largely, at least up until recently, roundly been considered a Christian nation. A worldview is what keeps you and I living daily with reference to God. A worldview informs our thinking about God and his creation and how we're to live. And when things happen, it helps inform the way that we view things. So you can see that many, many people go through life without reference to God, a God that's active in the world. It's called deism. Deism is this idea that God wound up the world like a clock when he made things and is kind of letting it run its course. But he's not really active in the world. Here in Isaiah 48, God makes his presence in the lives of his people very clear. In fact, he makes it unmistakable. And what God shows us here is that what he is doing in his people's lives is this. He is refining them. They're going through this great trial. They have, you know, Jerusalem has been sacked. They've been taken from their homes and away from their temple worship. In fact, the temple has been destroyed. They've been exiled in Chaldea, the Babylonian Empire. And it says here that what God is doing, he is not absent. He is not, he's not missing an action. God is very active in their lives God is refining them, which means God is purifying them. A gold refinery is a place where gold is placed over intense heat so that all the impurities, all the things that devalue gold, rise to the surface and can be scraped off. And that process continues until gold is seen as pure gold. This is what God is doing with Israel here in Isaiah 48. He says it explicitly. 
and this is what God does with his people today. First Peter chapter 1 says, Our faith is tried through fire, and our faith is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. So, this morning, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the furnace of affliction that Israel's going through, the furnace of affliction and you. Okay? The furnace of affliction and you. And here's, here's how I want to break this up. First, I want to look at Israel's furnace of affliction, which we clearly see in this text. Then I also want to look at another furnace that I think is alluded to in this text, and that is Christ's furnace. And then finally, I want to look at you and I. How does, how does this affect us? How, does, how do we relate with what happened to Israel? How do we relate with Christ and his furnace? And hopefully this will come into view more clearly as we move along this morning. But first I want to look at Israel and their refining. <clears throat> In verse 10, it says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Notice first that the reason for Israel's refining, for Israel's furnace of affliction, was their own sin. It was their own sin. God was not just on a kick someday and thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to afflict some people. I just kind of feel like doing that. No, he doesn't do that. It was because of their own sin. Verse 18 says this, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. God is lamenting over the fact that Israel would not pay attention to his commandments. He says, Oh, that you had paid attention to them. Then peace and righteousness would have flowed like a river and like the waves of the sea. So what was their sin? Well, they didn't obey, of course. But how did their sin manifest? We see in verse 1 that the people of Judah, the Israelites, the Jewish people, seemed to be very religious and seemed to be making some positive and true confessions, at least outwardly. Look at verse 1. It says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, who swear by the name of the Lord. These people swear by the name of the Lord, by the name of Yahweh. They swear by their God. And they confess, they make confessions of the God of Israel. Verse 2, it says, For they call themselves after the holy city. They make reference to Jerusalem, the place where they was a center of worship, was the pinnacle of the life of a religious Jewish person, was Jerusalem and temple worship. They call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on God. In other words, they rely upon God. The Lord of hosts is His name. Not just any God, but explicitly the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the hosts of the armies of angels. That's who it's talking about. But at the end of verse 1, it says this. It says they're doing all of these things, but not in truth and not right. Not in truth and not in righteousness. They are giving lots of external evidence, lip service you might say, or external showings of great religion. But it's merely lip service. What Isaiah said 
in Isaiah 29.8 and what Jesus repeated later to the Pharisees is very true of these Jewish people. It says, these people honor me with their lips. You know what I'm finished? But their hearts are far from me. So what's going on here? Well, clearly these Israelites are not atheists or agnostics. That's clear. I mean, they have not, it's not like they've rejected God. We see that they confess the name of the Lord God. They call upon the Lord. They swear by the name of Yahweh. They've not, they're not atheists. They're not agnostics. They had, so they're not that, right? So what's going on? Well, it seems like they have clearly embraced a worship of syncretism. You ever heard of that word before? Syncretism. Syncretism is this. It means you have your religious convictions and beliefs, but you also adopt some other ones from other places. Okay? So you have your Christian convictions, or for them is their Judaistic convictions, but they would also adopt some practices and beliefs from some of the other religions and nations and gods of the nations. Verses 3 to 5 seem to say, and the, pre- the previous chapters we've looked at seem to say that these people are steeped in idol worship. There is apparently the worship of the Lord Yahweh and the worship of idols too. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, it gives us a good picture of what was going on prior to the exile and I think is what is getting God so exercised about their behavior And it says this. I'm going to read it out of the NIV because I think it's, I I like the way that NIV puts it. Isaiah 2, 6 to 8 says this. You have abandoned your people. This is talking about the Lord. The house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. Fortune tellers. And clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasure. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. But in our text, it says that they worship God and swear by the name of the Lord. So which is it? It's both. Doing both. They swear by the name of God, but they also practice superstitions from the east and clasp hands with pagans and have fortune tellers among them like the Philistines. So they've embraced, they've embraced Eastern superstitions, fortune tellers, pagan customs, and they worship man-made things, and they worship Yahweh. And here's the kicker. And all the while, the land is full of riches and possessions. I think this is very relevant for us today. I think there is a lot of mixing of Christianity with other beliefs, whether it's secular humanism or popular psychology, and I'm not against all kinds of psychology, but some people just live by that, or Eastern mysticism, or other things, capitalism, right? A form of political persuasion. There's a way to mix Christianity with these things. In fact, I was recently directed to a book put out by a pretty well-known ministry that advocates dabbling with the New Age movement, to see if they've discovered any truths that we haven't as Christians. And I didn't, get this, I didn't get this from some abstract website. It's plucked one quote out. I read large portions of this book. Here's a specific quote from one of the main authors. It wasn't that I wanted to become a New Ager. 
I just wanted to find out if maybe they had uncovered some truths the church hadn't. So God is saying, oh, that you had heeded and paid attention to my commandments. And I think, first and foremost, the commandment of God in Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Israel is being refined here for their own sin because they want Yahweh, but they also want to dabble and play with other gods, religions, customs. Notice also that the refining was to restore a sense of awe in the knowledge of who God is. It's to restore a sense of awe in the knowledge of the God of Israel, this God that they swear by, this God that they call upon, this God that they say is their God, the Lord of hosts. God wants to restore, through refining, a sense of who he is in truth that would lead them to awe. Notice, I think, in verses 3 to 8, God is saying he's going to declare things, he's going to prophesy things, and then fulfill these prophecies in such a way that Israel could never say, our idols did it. Or, I knew that was going to happen. Verses 3, 4, and 5 Say this, the former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I know you're obstinate and your forehead brass. I declared them from of old before they could come to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved images and my metal image commanded them. God is saying, I'm going to, I'm going to prophesy things and fulfill prophecies in such a way that there's no conceivable way you could say, my God did this or some other God did this. The Lord God of heaven and earth has done this. Verses 6 to 8 say something very similar. You have heard, now see all this. He's saying, I'm going to say new things and now I declare to you, declare it. From this time forth, I announce to you new things. Hidden things you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. God wants to restore among his people the sense of awe at who he is. And brothers and sisters, is that not something we need? I know that I do at times. I grew up in the church, okay? I grew up hearing Bible stories. I grew up hearing teaching from the Bible. And it's easy for us at times to lose this sense of awe and wonder at what we say we believe. Who this God is that we say we worship here when we gather together. God wants Israel to know He is the Lord of history. He's the one that declares things and then accomplishes things. He's the one that's, that utters words, and they're not idle words. They don't return void. He accomplishes what his word is sent to accomplish. I remind you of Isaiah 46 a few weeks back, where God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and things that have not yet happened, saying my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. 
Not only does God want to declare and fulfill prophecies that would lead Israel to know that he is the Lord of history, he also wants to remind them that he is the self-existent creator and sustainer of the universe. Look at verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Jesus said in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. He wants to restore to them a knowledge of who he is, a knowledge that leads to awe and wonder and worship. Not only that, Israel is refined. Notice the motive of God in refining Israel. Verses 9 and 11. God is relentless, relentless in getting this across here in this text. Let me read verses 9 through 11 and see if you can pick up on a common point God is trying to make. For my name's sake, verse 9, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11, listen. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to no other, or I will not give to another. Four times God says, for my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake. You think God is trying to get a point across here? I think so. God's highest aim in all that he does is his glory. God's highest aim in all that he does is his glory. That does not mean he does not love us or that he doesn't have a motive of love toward us. It just means that his highest aim in all that he does is ultimately for his own name and glory and praise. And if this were not God's highest motive in all that he does, he could be charged with idolatry. For God said, you shall have no other gods before you. I shared this with the youth group the other night. And I said, so what do you think God would say to himself? And Ethan, you know, he's said, God should say, God should have no other gods before him either. Of course, that's the right answer. God should have no other gods before him either. If he were to make us a higher motive than himself, then we would be his idol, you might say. Look at the logic here. God is doing this for his own namesake, for his own glory. And then he says, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In other words, if God had consumed them and wiped them out in his anger, the name of God would have been profaned among the nations. The nations would have said, their God just didn't know what to do with them. They were too obstinate, too hard, too sinful. He didn't know what to do, so he wiped them out. So God shows mercy for his name's sake and will refine them instead. Notice finally that the outcome of Israel's refining was their joyful redemption. Their joyful redemption. Because God did this for his own name's sake, you know what it meant for Israel? Joy and redemption and freedom. 
Verses 20 and 21. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the end of the earth. So the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. That's verse 20. And of course, God did bring them out. Bring them out of Babylon back to their own land to rebuild the temple. So God called a man named Cyrus, who at the time this was written, Cyrus wasn't even going to be born for over 100 years. And he will be raised up, this Cyrus, to redeem the Jewish people from Babylonian captivity and send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So we look at God's refining work of the Israelites. And for you and I, this is an example for us. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, when it talks about God's dealing with Israel, one thing it says was, notice their disobedience. And notice God's dealing with them so that you don't fall in the same kind of disobedience. Verse 22 of our passage, the very last verse of the Bible, just like pluck there in the end. It's like, what the heck is that doing there? But it is an immovable law. One is firmly fixed as the rising and setting of the sun. It says this, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Those who continue in wickedness will know no peace eternally. The Israelites who heard God's word here and God's advances of mercy and love and liberation and redemption, they, if they continued in their wickedness, they would know no peace. And the same is for us. Ah, so you say. So all I have to do is refrain from the things they did that was sinful and start doing the things they didn't do that they should have done. Right? That may seem reasonable, but the answer is no. That would be to go in the wrong direction. The reason is, is because we can't. We can't. All a law of regulations does is show us that we are, or we are impotent. We are powerless to keep the law at a heart level until we are changed at a heart level. You know what I'm saying? The law comes to us and a list of do's and don'ts actually accomplishes the inciting of our sinful nature. It doesn't liberate us to actually obey it. So our only hope is the gospel. Your hope and my hope to not fall in the same sort of disobedience that Israel did is the gospel. It's, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's where I want to move to the portion of the message this morning and talk about Christ's furnace of affliction. You might say, where is that in Isaiah 48? I'm glad you asked. Or maybe you didn't. But I asked for you. Look at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15, I believe, is God clearly referring to to Cyrus and God's purpose to use Cyrus to overthrow Babylon and release God's people. And Cyrus in this way is a type of Christ. He is a type of a redeemer. He is a deliverer of God's people. He's going to liberate them and free them and send them into the promised land. But verse 16 shifts from Cyrus, a type of Christ, to Jesus Christ himself. Verse 16 says this, draw near to me and hear this. 
From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who's that talking about? I think it's talking about Jesus. I think Jesus himself is addressing us. The Israelites initially and us as well. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the beginning, I've been speaking and it's not in secret. Jesus is called the eternal word of God. And from the time it came to be, I have been there. He was with God in the beginning. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking and pointing forward to his incarnation and eventual furnace of the cross. So our, your remedy and my remedy to not fall in the disobedience that Israel fell into is not just to try harder, but it is the gospel where Jesus endured a furnace of affliction unlike any other. Christ's furnace of affliction. At the fullness of time, Christ came, the one to whom all the law and prophets pointed. Jesus here is saying, the Lord God is sending me now and his spirit. At the fullness of time, Jesus came. All the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. Jesus himself said this to the Pharisees. In John 5, he said, you diligently search the scriptures because you think in them there's life. And yet these point of me. The furnace that Jesus was to endure was not because of his own sin like Israel. Rather, it was because of the sins of others, namely yours and mine. His furnace was the consequence, not of disobedience like Israel's, but of obedience, perfect obedience that found its climax on the cross. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This furnace was to repair the glory of God that had been profaned. The glory of God through you and me, our lives, we have profaned God's glory. We have defamed it. We have thrown mud upon it. Jesus came to repair it. Jesus came to do this for the glory of God. Both to repair God's name that we profane, but also to be a manifestation of the glory of God that you and I could see with the eyes of faith and absolutely marvel at. Amen? Jesus did this to usher in peace and righteousness in himself because we could never usher it in for ourselves through our obedience. And rather than God's anger being deferred, as it was on the Israelites, when Jesus entered into his furnace, God's anger was intensified and poured out in full force upon him for the sins of the world. And Jesus did this, of course. He entered into this furnace for our joyful redemption. It says in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy that was set before him, 
He endured the cross. What was the joy? Well, I think it was to be reunited with the Father. I mean, certainly that. But I also think there's a sense where it's talking about the joy of liberating and redeeming His people. For the joy that was before Him, He endured this furnace of affliction called the cross. He did it for our joyful redemption. There should be no sullen, half-hearted acceptance here. At all, for our joyful, accept, or our joyful redemption, only a joyful reception of this Christ is appropriate when we see the glory of God in Christ on the cross. So, okay, so Israel's furnace is an example for us. Christ's furnace was for us. He came for us. Then how should we now live? This is important. This is the part where I said the furnace of affliction, Israel's and Christ's. This is the part where I say, and now you. Now you. How should we live in light of this? Or if I could put it this way, in light of Israel's disobedience and Christ's obedience, how should we now live? How should we live? How should we change our thinking and leave here determined to live differently? I have four things I want to close with this morning. First, you should make it your aim to grow in the knowledge of God. God was interested in Israel, their pure worship in Him. He didn't want them giving their hearts to Baal or to the superstitions of the East. He wanted wanted their hearts fully, completely for Him. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro, seeking those whose hearts are full or true or complete toward Him. So grow in your knowledge of God. John Owen, the great Puritan, said, The ignorance of the knowledge of God is the cause of every other sin. Let me say that again. The ignorance of the knowledge of God, listen, we're all ignorant in ways, okay? But the ignorance of the knowledge of God is the cause of every other sin. So grow in your knowledge of who God is, but do it in a particular way. Do it in a way that keeps the gospel at the center. Right? We don't want to just say, okay, I'm going to try to do better than the Israelites. We want to look at the Israelites. We want to behold Christ. And we want to do this in a way that keeps the gospel at the center. So we draw near and look to Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in his own face. Jesus Christ came to show us what God is like. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6 say this. Jesus said to Philip when Philip was asking him to show, to show him God, essentially, he said, Jesus, show us the Father and everything will be just fine with us. And Jesus said, have, you, have I been with you so long, Philip, now three years, that you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Or the way, G, the way Paul puts it in Colossians 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We, we worship an invisible God, but Jesus came, dwelt among us, put on flesh, right? Became a man, fully God, but took, took on humanity. He is the image of the invisible God. If we think we know God apart from Christ, we've been duped, we've been fooled. We don't know God apart from Jesus. 
He's come to show us what God is like. But also, I would challenge you not to truncate God by taking the nice things Jesus says in some of the Gospels and saying, ah, that's God, and rejecting everything else. So grow in the knowledge of who God is by looking to Jesus Christ, who was sent, we see in verse 16 of our text, by the Father for the purpose of redeeming mankind. Namely, by going to the cross, bearing the wrath of God against sin, satisfying God's justice, and opening up the paradise of God's mercy upon a sinful world. The paradise of God's mercy upon sinful people. Jesus has come to glorify the Father. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. No one's ever seen God. He's invisible. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. Holy Spirit loves to point us to Jesus. Jesus has come, and Jesus shows us the Father. Number two, submit yourself to God's loving discipline when you find yourself in the furnace of affliction. And I say when, because you will. You will someday. Some here today find themselves in it right now. And you can't, can't imagine it getting any hotter than it is. And I say submit to God's loving discipline, God's fatherly loving discipline. But do it in a gospel-centered way. Do it by keeping the gospel central. Draw near and look to Christ He took the punishment your sins deserved. And so any difficulty we're going through and God is refining us, it is not as punishment for sins. Jesus took that for us. All of God's dealings with you and I are for our good and out of his love. Period. Jesus has settled it. It's done. By looking to Jesus, we see that God is for us now and forever. So that when we're encountering affliction, a furnace of affliction, we can see a loving Father caring for us, doing, working in our lives for our good and for his glory and out of love for us. So in other words, have the attitude of the writer of Psalm 119 who penned these words three times in about eight verses. He said this, Before I was, I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it, was, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines those he loves and those who are not disciplined, they're illegitimate children because they're not his. They don't belong to him. So what's the point? God refines, he disciplines, he purifies so that we might reflect his nature more and more. 
so that we might grow in likeness to Christ, so that we might bear the fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, it says in Hebrews 12, in the context of God's discipline. Furthermore, Christ himself promises to be with you whether you are, you are afflicted by your own sin or maybe it's not directly related to your, your own sin. Christ is with you. Psalm 23, the good shepherd, who is Jesus, says, even though I walk through the... I love how it says, it doesn't say if I walk through, it says even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or I think NIV says the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Number three, walk in obedience to God. Walk in obedience to God. It's amazing how many professing Christians see obedience as optional. See obedience as, well, if I feel like it, or if I get woken up in the middle of the night and God tells me to do something, then I'll obey, but just just obedience in the just daily obedience to God. Be deliberate about obeying God, but do it in a particular way. I'm saying this for each of my points. Do it in a way that keeps the gospel central. Obedience takes on an entirely new meaning when in relation to Jesus Christ and the gospel. You might say, how? Well, our natural bent is to obey in order to get God to bless us or like us or be nice to us or accept us. But that is the opposite direction that the gospel takes us in. The gospel says this, through Jesus Christ, through looking to Christ and trusting in him, through him alone, through Jesus alone, his obedience alone, you are accepted, you are righteous, you have peace. Therefore, obey. See the difference? One is I obey, I I try to do my best, I'm doing my best so that God, now will you accept me, now will you receive me, now will you give me righteousness and peace. The other says, Jesus has accomplished all of that for you because you never could on your own and since he accomplished it for you and now you're accepted freely through Jesus Christ, obey God. Obey God from a new heart, with a brand new heart, with brand new motives. But again, obedience is not optional. So don't think I'm saying wait until you feel like obeying, but rather walk by faith, which is to live a life of obedience today. And I don't mean obey your own internal intuition that you say is God. I believe God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to us, gives us impressions and thoughts and words, and I'm not saying we don't ever follow those. Of course we do. But I have something else in mind. My sights are set in a different direction. And it is what is central to the great commission that Jesus gave. I'm thinking of these words. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. The great commission is go disciple all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. What has Christ commanded? We have the words of God here in the Bible, here in the scriptures, that are authoritative, that are clear, and that are binding upon the conscience of every Christian. 
Walk in obedience because God has already accepted you in Christ. Number four, leave the prisons of sin and the world behind. And don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it with a chip on your shoulder. Do it shouting with joy. Okay? No sullen freedom here. You don't have to bite your upper lip, stiffen, or stiffen your lip, and try to grunt through this. Jesus Christ has overthrown the prison wardens of sin and the devil. He's done it. He has opened the prison doors, your prison doors, and he has shined into your dark dungeon the light of the gospel, the light of his very glory. This is if you are a believer in Christ. Your Redeemer has done all of this. And now he says to you, he says this to you today, draw near, listen to what I've done, look at what I've done, accept it, rejoice in it, and walk out of prison. Do it now. Because if you wait till tomorrow, you may decide not to. Do it now. Do it today. And as you leave this prison, and this is a daily thing, right? We walk with Christ daily. As we leave this prison of, the, of sin in the world and we, we decide to make the, do this, there is a clean break. There is a time where we leave it, but then it's a conscious daily reality we live in. And when we do this, you will find the new road that you're walking on. Incidentally, Jesus calls it the narrow road is challenging to be sure. There are challenges there you won't face if you want to be on the broad path. Okay? But it's a path full of life. It is a path full of unspeakably glorious life. For to walk on this path, full of trials and difficulties, this narrow road is to walk by the rivers of the water of life, where we never thirst again. And where God's Holy Spirit continually refreshes us with his presence. Jesus put it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, every day, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's a daily thing. To walk in the freedom that Christ has given us. To follow after Jesus, which is the path of freedom. But it does require taking up our cross daily. The cross is an instrument of death, isn't it? Which means the scenario road is challenged. There's challenges here. But it's full of life. If you want to save your life here in this world, you're going to lose it anyways. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, then you're really going to save it. You're really going to find life. You're going to find real life. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, died at a very young age. Many of you probably have heard the name before. He famously said this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're not a fool to give away what you can't keep anyways, which is your life. And what you gain is something that you'll never, ever 
lose. So leave. Come out. Taken Reed's message last week. Come out of Babylon. Come out of slavery to this world system and to sin. Jesus Christ has accomplished everything for you to come out and walk with him and follow him and walk beside the rivers of the water of life, refreshed and full of life as you walk through this world. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done it. He's done it. All that Israel could not do and that you and I could never do, Jesus has done. He's done it. And he didn't just do it for himself, but he did it for you and he did it for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the glory of Christ. Thank you for Jesus, God. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for Jesus. When we see him, we see you. Forever confused about what you're like, may we turn to the gospel where mercy and justice meet on the cross, where we see who you are, that you are holy and, and, and in ourselves, we, you're unapproachable by us, and yet you condescended through Jesus, came to us for our redemption so that we could be reunited with you now and forever in paradise. And taste of it now. And oh, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you explode upon our hearts today and make this truth live here among us? So it's not just this goofy guy up on stage saying things, but it's you speaking, God, for we need to hear your words. We need to hear you declare these things to our hearts. So I pray that you have been, and I pray that you would continue as we leave so that we would be reminded of Israel's disobedience, glory in Christ's obedience, and live in light of it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Um, I'll be down front here. If anyone wants prayer for anything this morning, um, I'll be down front.